My name is Jonathan. I'm your host for today. Joining, the, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have our co-hosts Doug, Erica, Gabby, and Tiffany. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Hello. So today our topic is uh, uh, wheat, the staff of life. We're going to talk about wheat and uh, <clears throat> how necessary it is, how good it is, how bad it is. Uh, some of the myths and the truth surrounding the topic of wheat. Um, we know that wheat is a giant industry. Um, we know that people are eating wheat products all day, every day. And a lot of people think that um, that wheat is, you know, is good, it's necessary. And there's this phrase that's been floating around for some time called the staff of life. And uh, <clears throat> we were talking about this, and uh, just kind of a metaphor came to light um, that it actually is the staff of life. Because if you look into how a staff is used, by a shepherd, uh, when a shepherd controls his sheep and a new ewe or a baby sheep is born, um, the shepherd uses the staff to interact with that baby sheep uh, so that uh, he won't get his human smell on the sheep and kind of taint it with the smell of the human so that it can still bond with its mother. But if you can look at that from a certain perspective, that the staff is the, what masks the influence of the controller of the shepherd. And so it, wheat is actually the staff of life. The, the wheat is, is used uh, to a certain extent within our society to control the masses, to control the way people think, uh, to keep them kind of docile. Um, and it, it really is the staff uh, that those, you know, quote unquote, above us sort of use uh, to keep us in place. And I know that sounds like kind of an extreme idea, but we are going to go into why that is and how it works. Um, so. We wanted to start a little bit with uh, Tiffany has got some statistics about wheat that she has at the ready and some information about the uh, what are called gods of agriculture. Tiffany, do you want to go into that? Sure. Um, I have a few stats. Um, like you said, wheat is really ubiquitous. People all over the world eat it every day, several times a day. Um, there's about 700 million tons of wheat produced in the world every year. It's second only to maize or corn. Um, it's a staple food and is grown on more land area on the earth than any other crop. So wheat first came about, it was first cultivated about 12,000 years ago. It's thought to have originated in Southwest Asia or the Levant region. And it was introduced into the Americas in the late 15th century with everybody's favorite explorer, explorer Christopher Columbus. Um, but throughout history, there different civilizations have their agricultural gods. It seems to be like uh, many different cultures have these these gods that allegedly taught them agriculture. Um, and mm-hmm. William Brand, Bramley in his book Gods of Eden, he mentions briefly about uh, the god Ea teaching agriculture. So um, the ancient Egyptians, they had the god Osiris. Um, uh, he taught people how to sow seeds and harvest what the soil could produce. Um, there was Cronus. The ancient, the ancient Greeks had the god Cronus. Um, he taught the people the ways of agriculture, Um and then the Nordics had the god Balder, and he was also an agricultural god. So the question is, who were these gods, one, mm-hmm. and why 
why did they teach us how to do agriculture? Because if you look at the the history of humanity and when ag- agriculture came along, um, there really wasn't much of a benefit. Um, after agriculture, our health declined. We got shorter. Our bones became weaker. Uh, there was less free time because uh, most of the time was spent, you know, cultivating these crops. Uh, there was warfare. There was hierarchical structures. So what really was the benefit of agriculture to human beings, and why was it introduced to us at this time? I don't know the answers to those questions. This is something I wanted to bring up because it just seems strange. But uh, one of the one of the interesting articles called Origins of Wheat, that Civilization Arise to Deliver a Fix, um, the authors of this article, um, they speculated that it was the opioid properties in wheat. So op- opioids are drugs like heroin or morphine. So wheat has these properties. And it affects the reward centers of the brain. It produces cravings and withdrawal. And interesting, interestingly enough, um, pre-agricultural foods they don't have these properties. They don't cause cravings. They don't cause you to withdraw from them. So uh, these opioid properties and cereals and also dairy products, um, they affect our feelings of reward, uh, motivation. So we go out and seek these foods. Um, they cause us to be like, less anxious, and they increase our sense of well-being, and they're also addictive. Mm. So those are just some Interesting things about wheat and how it sprung upon us so suddenly, twelve thousand years ago or so. Oh, that is interesting, Tiffany, because you know most people will not think of um, the neurological effects when we speak about wheat. Not necessarily, they will think about digestive issues, digestive problems. But for example, you know people eating wheat, they can, as you said, you know they can have drugs like neurological effects, and these neurological effects can be reversed with medications used in emergency rooms to as an antidote for opioid toxicity. These drugs are naloxone and naltrexone, and they are used to counter the effects of narcotic drugs, and that's just because we have narcotic effects. That's pretty interesting. Right. Well, it's, it's fascinating to consider the history of this and how we can see it throughout past cultures. And knowing that you don't want to take all your information from one source, if you're really trying to learn the truth Mm -hmm. about a subject, you have to look at all the different sources, weed out the truth from the lies, take the archetypes, take the myths, um, you know, things that might not be so literal and other things that might be literal and then see where the connections are so you can see how it all fits together. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some some really interesting information uh, if you're looking at our, our blog talk radio page right now, you can see our picture of the uh, the, the, the book Wheat Belly, uh, which has a lot of really crazy information. In it. And um, Erica was going to go over some of that next and talk about how wheat has changed. Uh, we're talking about wheat historically, um, but, you know, during the quote-unquote biblical times, uh, wheat was completely different. Uh, and, you know, the grains themselves were completely different. They weren't hybridized. Um, they weren't genetically altered, uh, and they have been changed drastically over the years uh, to what we have right now. So, uh, Erica, do you want to go over some of that information? 
Yeah, sure. So I I really recommend uh, Dr. Davis's Wheat Belly book because he gives a really good kind of intro to this whole idea and then goes into the health issues and, as Gabby explained, the uh, toxicity in the brain and the body. And um, it was uh, published in 2011, and it became one of the New York Times top-selling books, I think within nine days of publication. And it was very interesting to read um, the negative responses that he got from the grain cartels, if you will. Uh, At one point on Amazon, they called him uh, the David Koresh of medicine. (laughs) And um, if you kind of go through and read, and he talks about this in an interview um, with Fathead, uh, it's just called an uh, uh, interview with Wheat Belly author about how every single negative review on Amazon didn't really address what he was saying. You know, they did they they kind of slandered him and talked about how he has no experience and no expertise, and um, he's been a cardiologist for the past 25 years. So I'd say he he does have some expertise. But anyway, I yeah. wanted to cover the. Uh, the uh, agriculture aspect and um, basically the argument is well we've been eating wheat for thousands of years um, it's good for us you know it's it's the staff of life and the health of or the food of the gods and, and such but what people don't really realize and what Dr. Davies goes into his book about is how it's changed and how it's not genetically modified yet but it's gone through massive breeding kind of changes and um so just to start uh there's this doctor norman borlaug and he's called the father of the green revolution and just a little bit of history about him because he plays a significant role in this breeding of modern wheat um dr borlaug worked for dupont um in the 1940s and in 1941 when the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened, his DuPont lab was set up to devise adhesives or glue. And basically they wanted a glue that they could develop that could withstand the warm seawater of the Pacific Ocean so that it wouldn't dissolve. And so he devised this glue to make this adhesive so that these military containers could be sent to soldiers and they wouldn't fall apart in the ocean. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, We'll get more into the glue aspect of wheat, but um, in 1944, he moved to Mexico and started um, devising high-yielding varieties of wheat, so smaller plants but more yields. At the time, his group made 6,000 individual crossings of uh, wheat and it resulted in the doubling of wheat production, um, but also a, a dramatic increase in the use of agrochemicals and water. It, it, it doubled production of wheat, but it also requires, you know, twice as much water to grow these these dwarf wheat plants, as they call them. And so they worked on that for about 10 years, and then they imported it to India. And um, in 1970, Norman Borlaug received the Nobel Peace Prize for his contributions 
to the world food supply and, and thus came about mm-hmm. the Green Revolution. When he gave his acceptance speech, he said, um, it's wonderful to be selected as an individual that symbolizes the vital role of agriculture and food production in a world that is hungry for both bread and peace. That was interesting how bread came before peace. But so this Dr. Borlaug is uh, synonymous with the Green Revolution, and um, there's a lot of criticism against him because although he's producing or his genetics is producing more food, it's also rapidly increasing the use of chemical agriculture products, pesticides, herbicides. And um, other concerns are, you know, they're crossing genetic barriers and uh, it's the the, um, inability for crops to get the nutrients that they need because of this intensive chemical input into the soil. Um, Also, like uh, decreased biodiversity, so monocropping, a little bit like we talked about last week with the vegetarian myth, you know, just clearing huge swaths of land to produce all this wheat. And it hasn't really addressed the hunger issue, as we know. So if um, any listeners are interested, you can read more about Norman Borlaug in a book titled, and it's available for free online, and I'll give the website, um, The World Food, or excuse me, The uh, Green Revolution, Violence of the Green Revolution, Third World Agriculture, Ecology, and Politics. And it was published by the Third World Network in 1991. It's written by Dr. Vandana Shiva. And you can find it at travel.org, T-R-A-B-A-L.org. And um, it's just really a scathing commentary on what this green revolution has done in India and the amount of problems that have come up since then. And just a two more things on Norman Borlaug that I I found really interesting, aside from receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. In uh, 1986, he developed the World Food Prize. And in 2013, the World Food Prize laureate named Monsanto's Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer, Dr. Robert Fraley, as their, you know, receiver of the award for the year. So it's all around nasty business. Well, it's just another example of, uh, you know, centralizing production as opposed to diversifying. Um, you know, people might say, well, how how exactly is this bad? And I think even though, you know, we who are doing some research on the topic and have made ourselves familiar, a lot of people may not be familiar with why you might consider Monsanto bad, you know, or <clears throat> their practices to be bad. Um but you can see, it, even if you just look at what Borlaug did, uh, again, the argument might be made by someone that, well, he was just trying to feed people. But the ultimate results of this are, um, you know, they benefit business. Uh, they benefit giant industries. They don't benefit the individual. And it's centralizing all of this stuff um, and changing the landscape in such a way that people are losing, like, the knowledge of how to take care of yourself, to get yourself proper nutrition, to eat the proper kind of foods is it's almost lost. I mean, it's coming back maybe in small ways now, but for the majority of the population, it's just not even something that they touch on. 
So I think it's really important for us to talk about this and why, you know, agricultural wheat would be a, a, a bad thing as opposed to a good thing. Um, on yeah, that note, <clears throat> oh, I was sorry, Gabby. I was going to say Doug, Doug and Gabby both had some information here on uh, some of the toxins that are in wheat, uh, some of the things that have resulted from this hybridization. And uh, Doug, do you want to go into that for a minute, and then we can we can go back and forth on it for a little while. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, just one one interesting aside there. I find it really ironic that the uh, the the uh, um, agricultural boom. Um, that started, I guess, probably in around uh, the, the 70s or, or so, um, is, is dubbed the Green Revolution, when it really is anything but green. You know, it's it's like uh, like Erica was saying. You know, it's, it's it requires more resources, more use of pesticides, that has more damage on the planet. It's just really ironic, I find. Um, yeah. So anyway, going into uh, some of the uh, the toxic properties of wheat, uh, just so people can actually see um, what's um, what is so bad about it um, that this uh, you know staff of life has has come around to um, to to basically uh, be the the feeder of the entire planet um, when it really is actually quite toxic. Um, so there's a couple of different components in there. Um, the protein component known as gliadin. Uh, which is, uh, you know, a component of gluten. Um, there's a glycoprotein known as lectin, um, wheat germ agglutin. Um, there's also um, exorphin uh, known as gli- gliadomorphin, um, as well as the excitotox- excitotoxic potentials of uh, aspartic and glutamic acid, um, all found in wheat. And that's not even getting into the things like anti-nutrients like phytates and enzyme inhibitors and things like that that you find in all grains and uh, legumes and uh, even nuts to uh, to a certain extent. So uh, first off, gliadin. Um, gliadin actually causes an immune response in all individuals. It's not just celiacs. Um, the difference being that uh, celiacs tend to have an, both an innate and adaptive immune response. Um, or sorry, the um, yeah, celiacs have a both uh, innate and adaptive immune response, and non-celiacs tend to have only an innate response. Um, so that's why you see such a strong reaction from celiacs, whereas you don't really see much of it in um, in uh, uh, non-celiacs. But there is an immune response in, in everyone. Um, it upregulates a, a substance called zonulin. Uh, zonulin is a substance that actually modulates intestinal permeability. So it regulates um, how big particles can get into um, the, uh, the, the bodily system um, in whole form. Um, so usually, you know, those, those uh, um, junctures that allow the, the different particles in are, are pretty small and only allow digested particles in, but zonulin actually um, regulates this so that it can let bigger particles in. So um, because it's not just the body regulating these, um, wheat is actually regulating it. It lets a whole host of foreign particles into um, the body uh, that really shouldn't be there. So that includes uh, anything from like undigested food particles that can cause immune reactions to, um, you know, viruses, bacteria, that sort of thing as well. Um, they're also well. The, the big one is um, WGA, the uh, the lectin, wheat germ agglutin. Um, so it actually causes non-immune mediated damage um, to the intestines um, and will subsequently get into the bloodstream and uh, damage all sorts of organ systems. Um, it binds to the uh, monosaccharide called N-acetylglucosamine, which is like a sugar molecule that um, coats our whole digestive tract and all the mucous membranes, um, and it will bind to that. Um, 
it uh, subsequently causes the increased shedding of the intestinal brush border membrane. So it increases um, uh, how quickly you're turning over all the cells of your uh, digestive tract. Um, it increases cell loss and uh, shortens the villi um, by binding to the surface. Uh, it can also mimic the effects of uh, epidermal growth factor, which is um, at the cellular, cellular level what causes um, you to uh, reproduce your cellular lining. Um, and there's some speculation that um, often a lot of the damage that you see from in celiac disease, um, the uh, crypt hyperplasia, as it's called, um, may be actually due to the, uh, this WGA and not actually due to the, the gluten itself. Um, mm -hmm. It's implicated in obesity and leptin resistance um, by blocking the receptor in the hypothalamus um, that kind of blocks your uh, um, sensor for um, appetite satiation. So what actually tells your body that it's no longer hungry, um, which can lead to, to overeating and all sorts of problems uh, with that. Um, it also mimics um, the action of insulin. Um, so that can lead to uh, your body basically uh, acting as if it has more insulin than it actually does, um, which can cause weight gain, insulin resistance, all sorts of things like that. Um, it also increases pro-inflammatory uh, substances in the body. Um, the chemical messengers, interleukin, uh, a couple of uh, different forms of that. Um, so it causes immune response in the intestinal and the immune cells. Um, it can actually uh, atrophy the thymus. Um, that was found in rat studies. Uh, but and it, um, also cross-reacts with other proteins, um, showing it may in, uh, contribute to autoimmunity. Um, and it's also uh, neurotoxic and passes through the blood-brain barrier. So it's causing all kinds of... Uh, brain damage as well um, and could possibly be uh, resulting in all kinds of different, um, uh, I guess, uh, you know, cognitive problems. Um, it's uh, cytotoxic to cells, induces aptosis, which is programmed cell death. So it actually, they're even doing uh, cancer research on this to try and like, you know, inject some uh, wheat gluten uh, sorry, not wheat gluten, but uh, WGA into the into to tumor cells to try and um, force them to kind of kill themselves. But it does it does this to all your cells. Um, it interferes with gene expression and it may actually prevent DNA replication. Um, it disrupts uh, endocrine endocrine function. Uh, as I said, it uh, mimics insulin. Uh, has an affinity for thyroid tissue and interferes with the pancreas. Uh, it also attaches to sperm and ovary cells and may play a role in infertility. Um, it may be cardiotoxic by inducing platelet aggregation. Um, and so that's the kind of clots that cause uh, heart attacks and strokes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and just to finish off here, um, it also uh, wheat also contains um, high levels of glutamic and aspartic acid, which are amino acids. Your body actually needs these. But uh, in high doses, they actually have an excitotoxic effect, which is like an overactivation of the nerve cell receptors. So it's like making the nerves fire much more than they, uh, they are supposed to, um, sometimes even to the point of them actually burning out because they're, they're overfiring so much. But we get kind of a charge out of this. Um, it causes kind of a buzz. So um, a lot of times that um, will increase the addictive potential. Um, so, I mean, uh, this is uh, one of the problems with things like uh, MSG, 
which is monosodium glutamate. It has that glutamic acid in there. It is also an excitotoxin. And aspartic acid is one of the main components of aspartame, the artificial sweetener. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, you can see all the, the um, detrimental effects of having too much of this stuff in your system. Um, these amino acids may uh, contribute to neurodegenerative conditions like multiple sclerosis, uh, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, um, and maybe even epilepsy, attention deficit disorder, and uh, migraines. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, not to mention uh, bipolar oh, disorder. Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. I think I remember reading a, a case study. Of course, they haven't done any, you know, you know uh, double-blind placebo uh, or double-blind controlled studies with uh, actual schizophrenics where they test them on a gluten, a truly gluten-free diet. But there was a case study where a woman had all the, the symptoms of schizophrenia, like the hallucinations and the odd behavior and the uh, uh, disassociation from reality, and they tried her on a completely wheat-free diet, and her symptoms went away completely. They didn't just, you know, improve. I mean, she didn't need any medications or anything. Her symptoms were gone wow. just from wow. a wheat-free wow. diet. Amazing. Well, I can yeah. attest to that. Yeah, that got... Oh, sorry, G Gabby, go ahead. You were going to say something. No, I was basically going to remember that now more and more in mainstream medicine, eh, the first uh, thing you have to do when there is a person with schizophrenia or autism is to remove gluten, gluten and dairy too, just because of the toxic effects of the proteins of everything that we've been covered so far, basically extremely toxic to the neurological system. It can be reversed, schizophrenia, if in some cases when you remove gluten early enough before damage is it's done. Hmm. That, uh, in my own experience, I used to, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't have classified uh, as a schizophrenic even in the DSM. <laughs> if you want to go by that, but I, I did have uh, I, I did have anxiety, you know, every day, all day, just a few short years ago, and uh, you know, getting off of um, I just started simply by getting off of bread, and that was it. And mm -hmm. even for a time there, I was still drinking beer, which obviously has gluten in it. But then I learned that you know that that also contains gluten and yeast and a number of other things. Um, so it's this process that you go through where you kind of weed out all the things that are bad for you. And uh, but I, I can say just at, at the very beginning, even when I just cut out stuff that had gluten, just bread, um, I started to instantly feel better. And um, mm -hmm. you know, and then it took it took some time to affect a bunch of other healing by removing a bunch of other aspects of my diet. But that, you know, if anybody's still eating bread who's listening to us right now, I would say just try it out. You know, <clears throat> you don't even mm -hmm. have to go nuts and, and go whole hog with it. You just have just just cut out bread for a week and see how you feel. You're going to have withdrawal for a few days, um, but I, I would I would be willing to bet that you're going to feel markedly different after a little while. Yeah, Jonathan, like you, um, when I was still eating wheat, I had a lot of anxiety, like excessive worry all the time over the smallest things and just depression, mm -hmm. pretty profound depression, sometimes to the point of you know feeling suicidal. And I'd say mm -hmm. that probably the, the benefits to mood are – are probably the greatest thing that I noticed since going gluten-free. I mean, you know, put aside like weight loss and, you know, skin improvements and all that, I think that 
the mood aspect was just worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting in Dr. Davies' book how he shares that mutant wheat doesn't kill you suddenly. It's more like slow mm-hmm. torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting that there are these kind of opioid properties to wheat. Um, when uh, part of the wheat is digested, partially digested, it forms a chain that uh, can actually uh, get across the blood-brain barrier and actually does mimic um, these opioids. Um, so it kind of has like a pain-relieving uh, medicinal quality to it. So all this damage that uh, that you're doing, a lot of times, I, I think Gabby mentioned this before, you don't even necessarily notice it. Um, so it, it's kind of like, you know, Jonathan, you mentioned the withdrawal symptoms. And that, that's the reason yeah. for that, because there are these these opioids that, um, you know, you're taking it in small amounts all the time. It's kind of like taking like a painkiller um, in small doses all day, every day. So, um yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting that uh, you know the damage that's being done is is so uh, masked by the properties that are in there itself. So it's kind of like a a, a package, you know. You get uh, you get your damage and your painkiller at the same time. Yeah, or oh, even yeah. taking in, in not so small doses because I remember when I was eating wheat, it was like my stomach was a bottomless pit. I could eat yeah. and eat and yeah. eat and eat and never ever ever be satisfied. And like two hours yeah. after I was eating, I was wanting something else. And, you know, I yeah. like the the pastas and just anything that was creamy and weedy. That's what I yeah. wanted yeah. all the time. That's probably from those uh, those leptin uh, properties, the properties of it actually um, mimicking uh, insulin and uh, and messing with your leptin yeah. resistance so that you're, um, you're actually, uh, you can't tell when you're satiated. You're still hungry even though mm-hmm. your stomach is full. Yeah. Right. And the feeling of irritability as well. I mean, even the, you know, <clears throat> when you're when you're ingesting an opioid over periods of time and you become addicted to it, then the slightest, uh, you know, it's a, it's a withdrawal symptom. The, the slightest absence yeah. of that, you become irritable, and it's kind of a double whammy with wheat because it's damaging, as Doug listed in in his litany of uh, problems there. That uh, that you know, if it's damaging the lining of your intestines, for instance, serotonin, uh, to my understanding, is mostly produced in the colon and not actually in mm-hmm. the brain. And so if your mm-hmm. if your guts, I mean, if you want to look at it in a simplistic way, if your guts are messed up, your mood is going to be messed up. And then on top of that, you're addicted to an opioid, and it's just, it's awful. I mean, it's this cascading list of really awful things that all chain together. I know the, <clears throat> the last time that, uh, oh, what's that, Doug? No, oh, I was just going to say it brings new meaning to the word uh, comfort food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the last time that I went on uh, on a vacation, I, I I slipped, you know, and I had a burrito, and uh, I, I regretted it right away. But uh, I'll tell you what, <clears throat> I had actually been good up until that point, and the day after, I was so hungry. I felt like I was starving, and I was looking at myself like, mm-hmm. obviously, I'm not starving. Why do I feel this way? You know, and it was just that little bit of a glutinous tortilla. Like, the rest of the contents of the burrito were actually pretty good, but it was that gluten in the tortilla that I, I believe caused that offset. And then it took me like three weeks to recover from that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you consider that, you know, sorry, well, I was going to say that other than the opioid activity, you know, wheat nowadays produces a huge spike in blood sugar, you know, because it has um, amylopectin, basically like um, a linear glucose chain amylose, 
and it's broken down to sugar very readily just by contact with your saliva, you know, in your, in your mouth. And uh, it's uh, to the point that it converts to sugar so much in the body that, you know, whole wheat bread increases blood sugar to a higher level than table sugar. You know, and we know that table sugar is very addictive by itself. Eating whole wheat bread is basically as bad as, or even worse than drinking a can of sugar sweetened soda or eating candy bar, you know. And that and whole wheat bread is basically what the American Diabetes Association recommends to diabetics. Which is, mm. I don't know, absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's almost like they want you to get diabetes. I mean, if I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure that a lot of, <laughs> especially doctors, would be really offended by that. And they're like, no, of course, we don't want you to get sick. But you're like, well, how come you're recommending things that make me have to keep coming back to you, you know? Yeah. Do, do you know that some diabetics even report that they reduced their insulin treatment dose by 50% on the very first day they reduced the amount of wheat in their diet? Wow. <laughs> Doug, did you have something well, to say there? I heard you. No. I was going to say that beats chasing your blood sugars all all over with your insulin all day long. But um, an interesting thing oh. about um, your your gut being broken down, um, I don't know how many of our listeners practice EE, but the, the vagus nerve runs from your brain down into your gut. And if your gut is irritated, that's going to irritate your vagus nerve and cause, like, brain dysfunction as well. So it's not just the the neurotoxic properties of wheat itself. It's also what it does to your gut and thereby your vagus nerve that kind of causes these mental health issues. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to add to that, too, just briefly. You know, it was mentioned that, you know, a lot of people don't have the physical reactions to wheat, the, the, you know, stomach aches or whatnot. For me personally, about seven years ago, I was a migraine sufferer, terrible migraines, and I went to a naturopathic doctor, and she said to me, just what you suggested, Jonathan, stop eating wheat for a month and see if the migraines go away. And sure enough, you know, no more migraine headaches. And kind of like you in the burrito story, if I'm somewhere and I eat something that has wheat in it and I'm not aware of it within an hour or two, I'll start to feel a migraine coming on. So there's definitely, you know, some super toxic properties there, and it just affects different people in different ways because that's the the response you hear a lot when people say, oh, well, you don't eat wheat. What do you eat? You know, how can you stay away from it? Is it, you know, I can eat it and I don't get a stomach ache or it doesn't affect me. I think each individual has their own kind of response to it. And it may not be something real noticeable right away, whether mm-hmm. it's your bad moods or for me, it was the headaches. For other people, it's um, the skin, you know, issues, breaking out eczema, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of different ways that it can affect people and so so i think sharing this information is so important one of the big ones there actually that people never associate with uh, diet um is joint pain um one Mm -hmm. one uh interesting uh couple of articles written by uh sayer g that you can find on uh on sot one's called uh opening pandora's bread box the critical role of wheat lectin in human disease 
and uh, the dark side of wheat, um, new perspective on celiac disease and wheat intolerance. Um, the, sec- the, the, the first one I mentioned, he actually goes into um, what actually is going on when, uh, you know, one of the popular supplements for uh, treating joint pain is uh, glucosamine. And uh, glucosamine is a chitin uh, that is found uh, in uh, a lot of uh, insect shells and uh, crustacean shells and things like that. It's like a hard uh, substance. Um, well, one of the main sugars in that is um, the one that I mentioned before, um, which is N-acetylglucosamine. Um, so what the, the WGA, that um, that lectin that's found in wheat, um, actually has an affinity for this sugar. It will bind to it. Uh, so what's actually happening when people are taking glucosamine is that they are stopping the WGA from attacking their joints, which has a lot of N-acetylglucosamine in it. Um, and it's just binding to the N-acetylglucosamine that they're taking um, or the glucosamine that they're, they're supplementing. So they're really just um, kind of diverting the WGA away from their joints by taking in this supplement. Um, so I found that really fascinating because anybody who's having joint pain and is finding some relief with glucosamine, just ditch the wheat. Like really that, that you know, yeah. gets to the root of the problem there. Oh, Yeah. For sure. That same thing with me, too. I know I've mentioned in a previous show that I used to have just crippling joint pain, and I really thought I had rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, come to find out that I I didn't. Uh, It was caused by the toxins that I was ingesting, and it really makes me wonder how many many people, um, like, you know, I have a friend here in town uh, who has a a young son, and um, he's diagnosed with arthritis, uh, and he's in his teens. You know, and it's it's like really, I mean, really, yeah, I, I'm not sure <laughs> because I'm finding increasingly more and more difficult to trust the doctor's diagnosis because they they believe in this information as well. When uh, in truth, when you really look at it, I, I think a lot of these issues are related to diet and nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At, at the level of mainstream medicine, they only recognize like celiac disease. But with celiac disease, we're missing about 90% of all gluten intolerance diseases. Like, literally, it has been linked with over 300 conditions, you know, from epilepsy, depression, numbness in the leg, everything that sounds very strange, you know, like, you know, idiopathic kidney diseases, you know. Literally every single disease you can think of in the person can be relieved by just removing gluten from their diet. I just wanted mm-hmm. to clarify something very basic about gluten because we have spoken about wheat in great length, but, you know, gluten or gluten-like proteins are found in all grains, you know, all yeah. grains. It's like yeah. gluten is like a hydro monster with hundreds of heads and uh, that is a subfraction of proteins. And uh, all of them contain this subfraction of proteins, you know, to a large extent or to a lesser extent. But you have to keep in mind that if you are if you are sensitive to these to these antinutrients to these proteins, then even you know there is even a statistic that five parts per billion of gluten can produce an immune reaction and that can affect a person adversely. Hmm. So yeah, that's something to think about. Yeah, I think that's really I had important that because I I see a lot of. Um, people with these um, kind of naturopath uh, recommended diets that are, are essentially like elimination diets where you eliminate kind of the food, foods that could be problematic. And so often they've got brown rice on there as, as, as being safe. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I'm always like, it, it's not safe. Um, any any grain has these components in it. So um, if you really if you're gonna go, you know, you may as well go whole hog and, and just eliminate all grains. And just eat and the hog. Part right? of the reason, yeah, this is part of the reason why genetic testing for gluten intolerance doesn't make much sense. It could be a guide, yeah. but when you have so many components in gluten and we don't have lab markers to test, and also you don't need a genetic susceptibility to be adversely affected by gluten, then there's really no point in testing, you know, for gluten intolerance. Just remove it. You know it's toxic. Just remove it. It's addictive. It, it will destroy your health sooner or later, but it will. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me, in my own experience, too, when I first did the gluten-free thing, I, I got really into the whole idea of these ancient grains. You know, there's quinoa, there's amaranth, um, buckwheat, other things like that. And um, especially quinoa, for me personally, I still had a reaction to it. So I was eating nothing else that, that you know, was labeled as having gluten, but I was making cookies and cupcakes and stuff out of quinoa. And my joints yeah. felt exactly the same. And then when I finally stopped doing that, I started to feel better. So... Yeah, well, you got to be really wary of all these gluten-free foods, like these these gluten, yeah. you know, they, they, things that are sold as gluten-free foods and their breads made out of like bean flour or buckwheat flour or something like that. It's the exact same thing. It really is. Like you know, you're you're paying, um, you know, ten bucks for a loaf of bread or something like that, and really you're not avoiding anything. Right. Yeah, you have to be very suspicious about the food industry, especially the gluten-free industry, because they make mm -hmm. billions of dollars. You know. By selling something that is as bad or just as you know just as bad as wheat, and uh, they don't tell you that it's you know that it's equally bad. It's made from grains. It's especially rich in carbohydrates. It's uh it's really not worth the money. Well, and I'd say don't don't even trust the uh, don't trust the label. You know because I've read numerous accounts recently between organic food or gluten free food where a company will basically take something. Uh, that that has gluten in it, label it gluten free, sell it, get caught, pay like a ten or twenty million dollar fine, and then keep selling something else until they get caught for selling that. They do the same thing with organic foods. You know, they take uh, processed foods, slap an organic label on it, and sell it as organic. Get caught, pay the fine, keep going. It's the same thing the pharmaceutical companies do. Yeah, it's more worth their while to pay the fine than to uh, um, actually, you know practice um good business practices right and i certainly don't want to talk dirty about some of the smaller companies that actually are trying to sell organic foods or actually are trying to sell gluten-free foods there really are good ones out there but it's up to you as the consumer to do your research about what you're getting and um i tend to just feel like it's it's better to just back away from the entire system get your very basic ingredients make sure you know where they're mm -hmm. coming from and then learn how to cook with those Going back a little bit from what how the, how we spoke, uh, how much the landscape has changed with hybridization. You know, I remember yeah. a patient in his 70s. He's like 72 years old. He remembers specifically, you know, that the wheat fields have changed so much. Like he remember playing when he was a kid, and the field was completely different. This reminds me of what Dr. William Davis says in his wheat belly book that even the small changes in wheat protein structure can spell the difference between a devastating immune response to wheat protein versus no immune response at all, you know. 
And uh, it's interesting, I want to read this quote from his book because just to give an idea how much it has changed, you know, microscopically and um, at the molecular level, level as well. He says that, you know, the average yield on a modern North American farm is more than 10 times greater than that of only a century ago. Uh, wheat, gluten, proteins in particular undergo considerable structural change with hybridization. In one experiment, 14 new gluten proteins were identified in the offspring that were not present in either parent wheat plant. Moreover, when compared to century-old strains of wheat, modern strains of wheat express a higher quantity of genes for gluten proteins that are associated with celiac disease. Multiply these alterations by the tens of thousands of hybridizations to which wheat has been subjected. It has the potential for dramatic shifts in genetically detrimental traits such as gluten structures. We have really nowadays a Franken-grain. Yeah. That's why we have, you know, a health catastrophe. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And like we were talking about a little bit before the Inconceivable. show. Inconceivable! Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just about the, the quantity, the, the sheer quantity of this stuff that's being ingested by people throughout the day. You know, you're, these opioids and these toxins, it's not like you're you're going out working really hard in the fields and then having a sandwich with a couple pieces of bread and then going back out and working really hard until sunset. Very few people do that and then eat very little. People are eating wheat products for breakfast, for a snack, you know, the, the hobbits call it second breakfast, and then like lunch, um, snack in the afternoon, dinner, then you're eating chips and stuff before you go to bed, you know, and like it's just all day, every day. And it's no wonder that uh, that a large majority of people are addicted to this and don't even realize it. And then on top of that, we have the pharmaceutical industries giving you SSRIs, other antidepressants, anti-inflammatories that contain steroids. And it's just like your gut is a disaster zone. It's so sad. Well, and there's a major backlash, too. You know, um, like I was saying earlier, when Dr. Davis, you know, wrote this book and put it out there, it was amazing within a couple of weeks the grain cartel stepped in and they even per- produced a um, five-page paper um, called Wheat Improvement, The Truth Unveiled, and it's at thebestgrains.com. And they go through his book and they try and debunk all these things that he's saying, right? And and it's just it's amazing how the you know, grain cartels really are trying to do damage control. And we've carried a few articles on thought about it. One is a really interesting read. It was produced back in 2011 uh, by Tom Naughton. And uh, it's the long knives are out for wheat belly, bring out the cult accusation. And this is where it was mentioned, the Amazon review calling uh, Dr. Davies the David Koresh of medicine. And um, it's just amazing how they don't address anything that he says in the book. You know, they just, it's basically character assassination. He has no credibility. And he's just offering suggestions to people, like you were talking about, eliminate it, see how you feel. It's not like he's going around proselytizing, you know. He's just sharing his 25 years of research. And um, he even responded to the wheat organization saying that uh, 
such as the Grain Foods Foundation and the National Wheat Improvement Committee, that um, he would like to have a discussion and address, you know, these attacks. And so he uh, launched press releases and um, wanted to have a publicity campaign. And in response, um, you know, no one even addressed him. They did, they don't want to have the discussion. You know, it's like, let's just not talk about it. Let's just shame him and say anybody who doesn't eat meat is, a, you know, a paranoid. And, yeah. They're orthorexic. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to eat He calls it the, you know, perfect chronic poison. <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> For me personally, the this curious piece of data that I've been able to collect about all the evils of gluten and we have covered like, you know, <laughs> the worst nightmare is that actually gluten can shut down the blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, you know, leading to ADHD, anxiety, depression. Like 70% of celiac patients have impaired blood flow to their brains. Hmm. This just means, you know, the prefrontal cortex, you know, it just happens to be the part of the brain which allows us to regulate our emotions, see the wider picture, you know, allows, it allows us to focus, consider the consequences of our actions, you know, it allows us to think. So if we are eating these as the staff of life, you know, no wonder, you know, they cannot, you know, we are not able to think, well, to think our way through this reality, you know. It makes me think about uh, a lot of kids, you know, that are that are in school these days, and they're, you know, these poor kids are, they, like you said, they're having the blood flow to their prefrontal cortex shut off, uh, and then they're pounding, you know, Red Bull or monster drinks, uh, just to feel like their brain works again, you know, just to feel like they can think. And then taking Adderall or Ritalin or anything else, again, just to feel like they can think at all. Um, and it's like there's this complete disconnect with what it actually feels like to have your brain work normally. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. There is a really good book written in 2013 by the neurologist David Permuter. It's called Grain Brain. The surprising truth about wheat, carbs, and sugar, your brain's silent killers. And it's a really great source for, you know, the average person who can't really, like, cover a lot of research because it has menus. For, and a lot of, of the research is uh, distilled in a very simple format, uh, all backed up with really good research. And, you know, it's a really good option to give to friends, family, and... Uh, and it goes to great lengths to see how it, how gluten, you know, and sugar affects your brain, you know. Thinking with mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease, but also heart disease, cancer, and uh, every single disease in general, for that matter. Well, the funny thing about these debunkers, um, and not to, you know, paint, paint it all with a broad brush, but the people who are trying to debunk Wheat Belly, I would love to see them put a sub sandwich down and then go up in a and do blood and lab work up against somebody who's grain free. And I'm sure, I promise you that the tests would be totally conclusive as to which one is better. But <clears throat> instead, they're going to throw out a bunch of logical fallacies and try to say, "Well, you're stupid," instead of actually <laughs> arguing the point. You know? Yeah, that's pretty yeah, similar to what. Uh, <laughs> 
I was just going to say, it's pretty similar to the the kind of brick wall that uh, that Jeffrey Smith has run into a number of times with um, with his uh, anti-GMO um, uh, you know campaign, where uh, you know when he gets attacked, it's it's very rarely on any of the facts. It's all just like you know, <clears throat> like uh, uh, William Davis is, uh, has come up against. You know, it's just character assassination. People will say things like, "Oh, well, you're not a scientist, and like therefore you don't have a right to comment on it." Um, similar thing you find in like in, in vaccines as well, like basically saying, you know, well, you're not a doctor. You don't have a right to, to, to say any of this kind of stuff or to, to comment on it at all. You know, it's like these these high priests of the, of the that guard the information and nobody's allowed to have an opinion on it because they're not informed well enough, which is nonsense, really. I mean, anybody can do their research. Well, yeah, you got to have comment. If a doctor goes to a diabetes fundraiser and eats a hot dog and drinks a soda, I'm sorry, I'm not going to listen to him. Well, and Dr. Davies says that in his book, you know, he said it conviction in writing this book was that um, wheat is one of the biggest issues of our time. And he would say that elimination of wheat is the most incredible and consistent, uh, consistently effective strategy that he's ever witnessed for improving health as he's been practicing medicine for 25 years. Uh, and his ideal solution is to say goodbye to it completely. Mm. So being on the top, you know, 10 New York Times bestseller list, you can see, like, people are buying this book. It's a very easy read, and it's really disturbing. And you can see how the grain cartel would come after him because basically there goes mm-hmm. their uh, their market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same thing we were talking it's about last like week. They're going to turn uh, around and say, "Oh, we're sorry, guys. We made a mistake. Wheat really is bad no. for you. They're going to profit, but we care more about your health than our profits. <laughs> or to spend yeah. time and money and resources developing a wheat that doesn't have the, all the things that Doug and Gabby mm-hmm. has shared in it. I mean, if they can create it with more, they can create it with less. I mean, it's mad mm-hmm. science. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. As long as the money keeps flowing in, right? Yeah. Which and you yeah, can see so- this this uh it's the snake eating its own tail. It's this system that's uh that's gotten so big it's like what they you know, they refer to these banks as the too big to fail banks. Well there are too big to fail agriculture companies now where if they fail, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands of people are gonna lose their jobs. And <clears throat> I mean, I can say that I have the personal opinion that this industry should not exist. But what are those people going to do for themselves when they lose their jobs? You know, if this were to go away, so we're we're kind of we're kind of stuck. It's a really sad situation. I think the really the best thing we can do right now is just to educate individuals and be like, look, you know, like we said earlier, just just start with bread. Just stop eating bread for a week, two weeks. See how you feel. Move on from there. You know, or um, you know, try supplementing um, some very basic nutrients instead of relying on pharmaceuticals. There's really basic things you can do to start this process, um, but it, it's hard. And I, I really find myself skeptical about the possibility of a of a real change on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really like, uh, yeah, no, I was going to say that it's really important advice because there are people with very debilitating diseases like severe psoriasis that they say. I just can't. I I just can't imagine my life without bread, you know. And it's just come on, you know. See how evil it is. 
just give it like <laughs> even a month, you know, two weeks, you know, and, and people will see the difference, you know. You go with, yeah, but through the withdrawal it, yeah. symptoms, but then you realize how, you know, how well you feel that, you know, that's enough, you know, and then you learn about it, it creates like a positive feedback, you know, that you feel good and you are more motivated to eliminate it, to eliminate it you know, on a longer term basis, you know. Well, I think as sort of, uh, I mean, I hate to use this word, but it makes some sense to say that we're evangelists for, for good health, you know, and as, <laughs> as proponents, as proponents for good health, it's really up to us to, uh, to have the data at hand. I think, Sometimes you can kind of use this scared straight kind of tactic where somebody says, I can't put my bread down. Say, okay, well, if you have time, sit down with me for a half hour, and I'm going to read off to you the list of toxins that you're putting into your body and the reason that you're taking these antidepressants, the reason you can't get up in the morning, the reason you wake up at 3 in the morning and can't sleep. You know, <clears throat> if you can show people the data, then you have a, a bit of a better chance to, to have them realize what's going on. But other than that, you know, you know I'm it's, I'm not going to put my drugs down. That's what it is. Yeah, that is really what it is. It's, it's really funny when you try and put it into perspective. I just kind of say, listen, it's 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 bread. Like, you know, it's not the world isn't going to stop turning if you don't eat bread. Like, it's really not yeah. that big a deal. You know, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's, it's the same with any foods that people want to eliminate. Like, it's just food. Right, like you're not you're not going to starve yourself. There's lots of alternatives out there. So you know, trying to trying to put yep. it into perspective for people can sometimes be helpful. Like it's really like I'm asking you to go a month without uh, grains. Is that really such a big deal? You know, in grand scheme of things, is that really an impossible thing? It's a big deal when your body really doesn't see it as food. Your body sees it as an opioid or a drug. Yeah, that's right. So. Right. How hard is it to get somebody to put down the crack pipe or the heroin needle? For <laughs> yeah. one That's a good point. Yeah, well, this, yeah. this is where it needs to be approached in the, in that kind of a <clears throat> mindset. You know that uh, that it is about it is about rehab. You you have to go to food rehab. <laughs> and having resources well, and support, as we've shared in past shows, you know, knowing that you can go to the health and wellness section of thought and read about it or on the forum and, and get recipes and alternatives and read people's stories about, you know, it's like, it's like the, the AA for bread addiction, you know, well, this is my story and this is how I got off of it. And, and, and my friend here, she had this problem and, you know, having the discussion and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it it provides relief for people because, you know, like with me, with the migraines, it's like, oh, so I'm going to take medication every time I get a headache or can I just change the way that I eat and, and prevent the headaches altogether? And, you know, people mm-hmm. always say, well, isn't it hard, you know, because I work in the food industry to not eat it and I and I say to them I would rather feel okay than not. I know what's going to happen mm-hmm. when I eat it. I know that the symptoms that are, and it's not worth it. I don't want to feel like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. a piece of bread is not worth a three-day headache. Yeah, that's nope. my reaction yeah. to wheat. Headache yeah. for three straight days. One time, I had a yeah. sinus well, headache like, for a month straight. Jeez! Wow, wow. I think that touches on a point that Erica brought up earlier too about how people might say, "Well, I eat bread, I eat sandwiches, and my stomach doesn't hurt." Well, you know, it's just, it's essentially the same as if I were to inject my forearm with Novocaine 
and then cut my skin mm-hmm. with an exacto knife. And I'm like, well, I can't feel that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, you cut yourself, but you can't feel it because it's novocaine in there. So <laughs> it's the same well, thing. You know, your stomach, your stomach doesn't hurt because the nerves are damaged and you can't tell. Yeah. Well, this is a very good example because we're actually anesthetizing ourselves against the evil effects, you know, of gluten by digesting it because it has opioid-like properties, you know, like drug-like properties that, you know, cuts off the pain. So we're self-medicating ourselves against the ill effects of daily bread with the opioid activity of bread itself. You know, it's like right. the ultimate irony, you know. It is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you know. Sire J said in that in that article that um, opening Pandora's bread box. You know, basically, wheat is a form of biological co-option and control of mm-hmm. the human body. It feeds the disease establishment, which feeds the FDA, and then the food makes you sick, and the drugs make a killing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming up on um, <clears throat> on our one hour mark here, and uh, Zoya, our uh, our lovely veterinarian from uh, from the Far East, <laughs> sent us a segment, and um, <clears throat> we want to play that for you. She's also going to be talking about the effects of gluten on pets. Um, so stay tuned after this. Uh, we're g- this will take about ten minutes, and we are going to come back and tell you how to make bread out of pork rinds. So if that's intriguing to yeah. you at all, um, get your notebook out. Praise take the some Lord. Notes on pets. Take take some notes from Zoya on pet health here And we will be back shortly Hello and welcome to the natural pet health segment of the health and wellness show Today we are going to talk about nutrition Or how to feed your dog and cat in a way that will contribute to the healthy and long life and before we go to e- into the proper way of feeding your pets, first let's talk about dry food and why it's the worst food you could give to them. Coincidentally, it also has to do with the main topic of the show. Okay, so what is dry food? It's a highly processed mix, grind to powder, that is comprised of various meats, including the non-meat parts from cattle, swine or chicken, such as intestines, lungs, spleens, unborn fetuses, diseased livers, cutaway tumors, and other parts unsuitable for human consumption. Or it can be restaurant waste or out-of-date supermarket meat. And yes, also so-called roadkill, or cows that died on a farm but never reached the slaughterhouse. Yep, and I myself, when studied for the viral and bacterial diseases exam, saw in the book that according to regulations, meat that isn't allowed for human or even animal consumption can still be used to create dog or cat dry food. Some manufacturers try to cut costs and instead of meat add ingredients like corn gluten meal, soybean meal and plant protein concentrate to get the protein up to acceptable levels. Other ingredients include carbohydrates or starch, a vitamin mineral premix and water. And all this mix goes through hours long processing in high temperatures. The problem is that proteins tend to denature, to be distorted by heating. And these abnormal proteins may be a factor in the development of food allergies as the immune system reacts to these unnatural shapes. And what about carbohydrates? Dogs and cats are carnivores. Dogs considered to be facultative or optional carnivores, while cats are obligatory carnivores. Meaning, both of them are meat eaters. 
Their natural diet is high protein and high moisture. Carbs constitute 1 to 8, maybe 9% at the most. The carnivore's ideal diet is essentially the paleo diet. Lots of protein and fat and a small amount of complex carbohydrates from vegetables. And the average dry food contains 35-50% carbohydrates. Some of the cheaper dry foods contain even higher levels. So basically, dry food, no matter how expensive, can be considered as optimal feed for both dogs and cats. And while dogs as optimal option, uh, optional carnivores have certain biochemical pathways that are designed to deal with carbs, cats are simply not built to process carbohydrates. Cats preferentially use protein and fat for energy, and these pathways are mandatory. Felines have very limited ability to process carbohydrates and are programmed to turn carbs directly into fat. They also lack specific enzymatic pathways that are present in other mammals, and they lack a salivary enzyme called amylase. It's an enzyme that catalyzes the transformation of starch into sugars. Dogs also don't produce amylase in the salivary glands, but we do. Both cats and dogs produce amylase in the pancreas. And so, since both cats and dogs have no really dietary need for carbohydrates, diet high in carbohydrates can be detrimental to the health. It is being made worse by the fact that corn, one of the main ingredients of dry food, has a high glycemic value, and grains that are also being used contain gluten. And it doesn't matter if a pet has gluten intolerance or not. Because of the specific physiology of carnivore mammals, any grains, wheat, barley, soy, act as allergen, as an allergen. And yes, dairy products trigger allergic reaction too. The well-known notion that cats need milk is the biggest myth there is. The same is with fish, but it's another story. Coming back to grains, wheat and soy are the worst while oats and rice are less harmful. Therefore, people in East European countries that can't afford to feed their pets with meat only do oat porridges and mix them with cheap meat cuts. And while it isn't ideal, it is still better than dry food, even if it's an expensive gluten-free or corn-free dry food. The simple fact is that animals require the food to be moist. Otherwise, it gets stuck in the digestive tract, leads to formation of urine crystals and other problems. As it turns out, at the beginning dry food contained only corn, and then, after many complaints, manufacturers replaced it with wheat. But then, some veterinarians uh, noticed that pet health experienced even further decline, not to mention the fact that one of the leading cat diseases nowadays has to do with kidney problems, specifically renal insufficiency. Now, why do you think this is? The answer is right before us. You don't add the number one dog and cat food allergen to the diet, without having some major repercussions. Apparently, the veterinary profession is short-sighted, just like the medical profession, because 60-70% of the modern diet is comprised of cow milk products and wheat. Well, there is a price to pay for this sort of ignorance, and it is heavier than most realize. The main cost is the disruption of proper digestive tract function. Once the essential nutrients have been malabsorbed for a long enough time, there is no way back. It depends on individual pet's immune system and resilience if they will become sick in the childhood, adolescence, or adulthood. But the bottom line is, when a pet consumes dry food, 
it is a matter of when they will develop problems, not if. Gluten will eventually affect every pet with its nutrient-blocking qualities. Here is an example of how exactly the damage occurs. Take conditions such as hip dysplasia, elbow and shoulder problems, intervertebral disc syndrome, cruciate ligament ruptures, and even heart valve failure. All of these problems are caused by failing cartilage and connective tissue, both of which are structure, uh, structured similarly and made up of calcium and collagen. Collagen, collagen is the building block of most of your skeletal support structures. The principal component of collagen is vitamin C. Therefore, when it is understood that calcium is absorbed primarily by the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine, while vitamin C and other vital vitamins and minerals are absorbed both by the duodenum and the rest of the small intestine, then it is easily seen that inadequate amounts of this in the diet or failure of their absorption will compromise the integrity of all of these structures. There are also other problems that are usually associated with dry food consumption, like diabetes, kidney disease, urethral blockage, urinary tract infection, development of crystals, inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, fatty liver disease, dental health, asthma, general poor health, and including weak immune system. Okay, so now you understand that you shouldn't feed your pet with dry food, but you are probably asking yourself what to do instead. And surely canned food is better than a dry one, but still, the quality of the meat is rather questionable, and there are cats and dogs that still develop various problems, including neurological ones. So it appears that raw meat diet is the most optimal. There are many sites and videos that provide detailed explanation and instructions about feeding your pets with raw meat diet. There are various techniques, uh, techniques and ingredients. Unfortunately, expanding on one of those techniques isn't in the scope of this segment, and I also urge you to do your own homework. Read articles and watch videos. Each pet is unique and so each situation, you need to find the best one for you. But several most interesting and informative links and videos will be including on the page of this show. So you can start with them. So that's it on that topic. Hope you found it useful. But before we go, I promised a friend to talk, about, uh, to talk a bit about possible reasons for excessive drinking in dogs. Granted, this is a big topic that is more appropriate for a separate segment, so I'll just mention several key suspects and conditions that, as it turns out, can be also caused by bad diet, like eating dry food. So it can be diabetes, Cushing syndrome, Edison disease, uh, or liver uh, or kidney disease. In all of these situations, better take the dog to a vet for, for a series of various tests to determine the nature of the problem. But as was already mentioned, first of all, make sure that you feed your pet properly and not with dry food. Another condition that is characterized by sudden excessive drinking and increased urine production may occur in intact female dogs, and it is called pyometra. Pyometra is, an, is a uterine infection and is considered to be a serious and life-threatening condition that must be treated quickly and aggressively. So if you have an adult intact female dog that suddenly drinks and pees a lot, uh, less active and has an inflated stomach, take her immediately to the vet. Well, I think that this is it for this week. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
right, that was awesome. That was Thank you, Zoya. Thanks for bringing that information to our attention. Really, we uh, here here at our house, we've been doing research into the raw food diet lately for our dog, and uh, she's really been taking well to it. Um, so. <clears throat> I hesitate to say that we've seen any concrete results yet, but I would say that I have seen some small results. It's only been about four days so far, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that as we move forward, we'll see some even better results. So, well, here yeah, my the, cat uh, is on uh, raw food too. Uh, yeah, I can't say that I've seen anything definite except for the fact that he's still here, and he's pretty old. He's about 17, so well, I ain't raw food. Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, that our our dog has uh, arthritis, and uh, she had these um, these you know inflamed kind of lumps on the top of her hips in the back, and some of them some of the lumps she has are lipid tumors that the that the vet diagnosed, but other ones were just you know arthritic inflammation, and those have actually been decreasing in size just even in the last couple of days, so that's really promising. Um, so here at the at the end of our show, we're going to go over our recipe for. Uh, bread made out of pork rinds, and I could hear some people <laughs> who might be listening like pork rinds, you know, because all you ever think of when you hear pork rinds is pork rinds in the bag that you see down at the gas station. Um, but these are not the pork rinds that you have known for your whole life. These are a little bit different. So Tiffany's going to clue us in on this recipe, uh, and these guys have already made it. So um, we have some experience here. Tiffany, do you want to go into that? Yeah, pork rinds oven pan bread since we're talking about bread and it is delicious this is not my recipe this is karen she's another sot editor uh she came up with this recipe so um here it is okay so this is oven pan bread uh you can use this is the recipe for an eight by eight uh dish you want to use a glass dish, and you, you're going to need a food processor for this recipe. So the recipe is six eggs, seven tablespoons of bacon fat, or instead of bacon fat, you can use five tablespoons of ghee or unsalted butter. Uh, well, you can use the five tablespoons of ghee or unsalted butter along with two tablespoons of bacon fat if you just want to decrease the amount of bacon fat that you use in this bread. And then you need um, six ounces of pork rinds, 2.5 tablespoons of xylitol, 1.5 tablespoons of bacon powder, uh, any kind of spices that you want. Um, if you want a, a sweet type of bread, you can use cinnamon, allspice, pumpkin pie spice, or orange peel. For a more savory type of bread, you can use rosemary, thyme, garlic, onion, or whatever you choose. So about one tablespoon each of whichever type of bread you want to make, sweet or savory. Um, but if you do make the savory bread, you want to cut down on the xylitol. Uh, cut that down from 2.5 tablespoons to 1.5 tablespoons. So um, get your food processor and your pork rinds. Um, you want to use the highest speed on the food processor and process the rinds down so they're at a, a, a flour-like consistency. And then add in your baking powder, your xylitol, and your spices. Blend that all up, set it aside, and then in a large bowl, 
Uh, take your eggs, whip them into a froth, um, add in your dry ingredients uh, along with your ghee or your butter and bacon fat. Mix it well and let it sit for five minutes. Um, depending on how thick it is, if it's overly thick, you can mix in a, a, a little dab of water just to thin it down a little bit. Uh, and this is going to be in a 350-degree oven. Um you want to grease your, your baking dish, your glass baking dish, with bacon fat on the bottom and the sides, and then transfer your batter into the dish. Um, you can sprinkle a little dried onion flakes or rosemary or any other spice of your choice on the top. And you want to bake that in a 350-degree oven for 40 to 45 minutes until you can pull out a toothpick, pull it out clean, or insert a knife clean and your bread feels solid, and this makes a very, very, very yummy bread. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the only thing you awesome. can make with pork rinds. <laughs> you can make pancakes and cookies and brownies. So there is life wanna, without bread. Yeah, I was going to do the brownies one with pork rinds. It was absolutely delicious. I was so happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, just to clarify for our listeners, if they may be uh, having some illusions about pork rinds, that that pork uh, all pork rind means is the skin of the pig. Is that correct? It's the skin. Yeah. You don't so want like... fatty pork rind in there. You want it to be as dry as possible, so it's like a flour consistency. Right. So where people might be able to find, I mean, we're, I don't want to encourage people to go and get the, uh, you know, the processed bag of pork rinds, like we said, from the from the gas station or anything like that. Um, talk to your local farmers, talk to a local butcher if you can find them and ask them about pork skin, pig skin, and see if you can find it. Because um, uh, it can be used in some really inventive ways, as we see here with pork rind bread. And I believe you guys made a pork rind pizza recently, too. Is that correct? Yeah, Karen made a pork rind pizza, and it was yummy. Maybe that can be a recipe <laughs> for up. another day. But, yeah, it had a pork rind crust and really awesome. good ingredients. No cheese either, but it tasted. It tasted just like pizza. <laughs> nice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. I mean, I think uh, we've gone over quite a bit of information today. I'd encourage uh, everybody who listened to, uh, again, Take your notebooks out. Uh, if you missed anything, listen back to the show. Write it down. Look it up. Look up your own primary sources. Get the information in your own head so that you understand the truth about the food that you're eating and you understand how to talk to people about it because um, we want to get this uh, this information out there and help people be more healthy, eat more healthy, um, get rid of the conditions that are plaguing you right now. Uh, it's totally possible, totally doable. And uh, you don't have to cram ph- pharmaceuticals down your throat to, to get there. So um, you've been listening to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. And, um, again, I'm, my name is Jonathan. I was your host for today. And we'll just uh, say goodbye from, from all of our co-hosts. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week again at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, p.m. Central European Time. Uh, We will see you then.